6,200 thoughts a day. This was the finding of a university in Kingston, Ontario, uh, when they sought to look at the brain and see how many thoughts the average person had in a given day. And what they did was they actually studied the, the transition pieces between thoughts, because apparently in the brain, whatever your brain does, when you transition from one thought to the other, it creates the same thing, so it can be studied. Uh, and the question that I have for you this morning is this. If all of your thoughts were no longer private, but instead were made public, how would that change what it is you spent time thinking about? One of our favorite activities recently uh, of my wife and I is uh, to ask our middle daughter, Indy, what her favorite, uh, or what she's thinking about in any given time. So there will be times in the day where she'll be like eating breakfast, right? And the other day she was eating breakfast and she was staring off and we asked her, Indy, like, what are you thinking? And she responded with, well, I just really want to be a mermaid to know what it's like to swim with dolphins. Fascinating, but also hilarious all at the same time. And then not long ago, we asked her, I think this time she was out playing outside, but, but you could tell that she was in deep state of thought. And we asked her, Indy, what are you thinking right now? Ah, I just wonder what it would be like to be the queen of ice cream. And while these are funny things, uh, our, our private thoughts are rarely made public. And so it begs the question, what would happen if it were? Recently, I stumbled across a guy uh, who uh, makes a living on YouTube and, and live streaming by calling scammers. You know, the people that call your cell phone or call your home phone, and they'll say something like, your social security number's been compromised, or you have a virus on your computer and you need to pay a big amount of money to get it taken off, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so this dude makes a living by calling those people and, and then publicizing it on YouTube and, and on uh, a live stream. And so uh, I came across this one where he was nearing the end of his live stream, and during that time, he called a scammer and essentially just laid out for the scammer what he actually was up to. He, he told him that, that he was after uh, making a YouTube video and all these things. And, and there was an interesting turn in the conversation for the, uh, the scammer. We'll, we'll call him Joe. And, and Joe proceeded to like play along just for the sake of playing along. And, and then they started to have an actual conversation about why Joe does the scamming. And so Joe proceeded to tell some interesting things, one of which was he, he basically said that he has this principle uh, where he knows what he is doing is wrong and that it's bad and, and that he is a bad person for doing it, but he's not as bad as other people. Like there's a certain degree or percentage of badness uh, and he's on the lighter end of that bad scale. And, and part of the example that he gave was if he were to come across somebody who was homeless, he wouldn't scam the homeless person for money. But if somebody made like $20,000 a year, he felt perfectly fine scamming them for, say, $2,000. And it occurred to me when they were having this conversation that, that there was something happening for Joe. What Joe was doing in private was now becoming very public. And we're talking tens of thousands of people who were watching the live stream. And beyond that, 50,000 plus people who regularly view the YouTube videos, and so what he was doing in private was suddenly becoming very public. And he did what most people do when they're caught doing something bad in private. He began to rationalize in public. And so what happens in private moments is actually very powerful in shaping 
the things that happen in public. The mental health field and related areas of study, uh, they have spent countless hours and lots of money trying to study and, and look at what happens in particular to the mind or, or what happens when, when things occur outside and, and how does the mind respond like to trauma or to different chemicals or, or whatever. And they spend lots of time looking at the significant impact that the mind can have in everyday life, specifically negative impact. Now, maybe you've been caught in one of these moments. Maybe actually for you, your experience wasn't necessarily negative or positive, but you know what it is I'm talking about. And here's, here's an example. Maybe you have lots of things that are on your mind and, and there's lots of things that are vying for your attention and, and you actually get so distracted that you forget that you're cooking an egg on the stove. And suddenly that egg begins to smoke and remind you that you're cooking the egg. All right, so, so what happened in the private moments of your life had a direct impact on the public things that were actually happening. Now, beyond this, it's not just negative. There are positive sides to this, too. In fact, uh, one of the most in-demand things for sports teams are sports psychologists, You've heard of people getting in the zone, which is like this mental space that, that athletes can get into where they essentially can't make any kind of mistake. They get into this, this place where they can't mess up and they don't miss shots. You see, there's great power in the private moments of life. This morning, what I want to say is this. Private life is preparation for public life. And as we continue in our series and, and we continue in the well-pleased and living a life that's pleasing to God, I, I want us to ask the question this morning, what does it mean to live a private life that pleases God? What does it mean to seek to please him in the private moments of our life? And how do we treat those private moments with intentionality so as to please God? And I also wonder this. I wonder what it would mean if we were to lead a private life where if it were laid bare in front of tens of thousands of people like it was for the scammer Joe, I wonder, I wonder what it would mean to lead a private life where we didn't have to rationalize. and We didn't have to, to think about and compare to others and explain away as to why it wasn't as bad as it seems. Those are the things that I want us to, to think through this morning. You know, the Bible talks a lot about private life. In fact, David, he writes in the Psalms pretty regularly about the private areas of life. In Psalm 19, 14, David says this, let the words of my mouth, so that would be the public action, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the private places, may it be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, in Psalm 104, verse 34, he says, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Solomon would write about it in Proverbs uh, 15, 26. He, he talks about the flip side of the uh, private life. He says, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. The thoughts, the private life, the private places are an abomination to the Lord. But gracious words are pure. See, the inner private life is meaningful. Private life is preparation for public life. As we settle into to God's word this morning, I want us to look at a story with Jesus. And in this story, Jesus actually doesn't address the question that we're asking specifically, but what Jesus does do is he upholds a, a principle or a commandment that speaks volumes as to what it means to live a private life that pleases God, to please God in the private moments of our life. But before we dig into God's word, let's take some time to pray and ask his blessing on our time. God, 
Would you do what only you can do and teach us through your word? God, would you grant us ears and eyes to hear and to see, but God, more than that, grant us minds and hearts that, that act on, that take in your word and, and contemplate and, and change on behalf of. God, if you will, teach us from your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 22, we're gonna start in verse 34, and, and here's what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Now, just some quick background to help us better understand what's happening in this story. We, we jump right in where the Pharisees are doing something in response to something else. It says, but the Pharisees. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus has just had an interaction with the Sadducees, which you can read about just before where we started reading, where we picked up reading. And the Sadducees, they were people, they were Jewish leaders at the time, and, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so that's kind of what they tussle with Jesus about. But in his handling of them, uh, he has silenced them. And as a result, the Pharisees now are plotting together, they're conspiring together and trying to figure out how they can trap Jesus. And so the question that they actually bring to Jesus is, is a simple one. It's not a difficult question or a complicated question at, at face value, but this is what it says, verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, there were 613 commandments given in the Jewish law, and rabbis would teach that all 613 were to be equally obeyed and respected. But within the rabbis' teachings, they, they had granted that some of the laws carried a heavier weight. They were weightier. There was more burden to them. And so there was some debate about which would be the greatest. And, and uh, so that this question of what is the greatest commandment, um, it, it's probably not actually meant to um, for, for Jesus to uh, give the right answer so much as it is to expose him as to not being able to give the right answer or even better, to expose him as being unschooled in the law. So that's the intent of the Pharisees. And then Jesus gives an answer like this, verse 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This response that Jesus gives, it actually carries the utmost respect for Jewish tradition. It upholds thousands of years of, of previous teaching. And what Jesus does here is he actually quotes the Shema. And the Shema was something that the, the Jewish people from the earliest of times would recite on a daily basis. It was, it was something that was at the very core of who they were. If, if they had core values, kind of like you hear today, uh, if they had core values, the Shema would be at the center of it. And here's what the Shema says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus here is, is saying that this great commandment is the same great commandment that has been from the beginning, that it drives the behavior. In fact, this commandment, when you look at it, it actually is a commandment that addresses private life. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, a private place in our life, with all your soul, a private place in our life, with all your mind, a private place in our life. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't stop with this. He doesn't stop with just this commandment, but instead Jesus continues. He says this in verse 39, and a second is like it, and a second commandment is like it, is equal to, he says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says what we said earlier, private life is preparation for public life. Jesus here actually again quotes Leviticus 19:18 where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself but but Jesus is essentially connecting these two and he says that that when we seek to live a life that pleases God it directly impacts from a private place the public place the greatest commandment of all of the commandments, the greatest that has stood the test of time for thousands of years, this has been the center of Jewish life, Jesus upholds this commandment, this principle, that loving God is, is holistic. You can't just outwardly love God with your actions, you must inwardly love him as well. There's no compartments. Honestly, this is hard for some of us because we have a compartmentalized life. We have our... Uh, private life, we have our public life, we have our, our work life, we have our family life, we have our hobbies, we have all of these different compartments, and we like to keep them in those compartments, but what Jesus does is he inextricably links that which is private to that which is public, and when it comes to loving God and, and, and pleasing God in the private areas of life, it actually has an overflowing link to the public place. Private life is preparation for public life. And it makes sense why this would be an emphasis of God from the very beginning. You think about Adam and Eve, and you think about the story of them in the garden and of their sin. And, and what you learn from that moment, or one of the things that we learn from that moment, is that what is done in the private realms of life has the potential to wreck the things with which we love about the public life. There's great impact with, with what we do in our private life. But not only that, the thing is, when we are alone, when we are isolated, when we are separated from others, when we are in those private moments of life, this is when we're actually most vulnerable to temptation. This is why Satan seeks to, to tempt Jesus as he's led out into the wilderness alone. We see this lived out in the animal kingdom as well, with lions as they, as they prowl and seek to devour gazelles. Which gazelles do they go after? It's the ones who somehow become separated from the pack and are now isolated. We are most vulnerable when we are alone. We are most vulnerable in the private moments of our life. Private life is preparation for public life. And Jesus, what he says is this. If we want to love our neighbor well publicly, we have to love God deeply privately. Paul he also goes on to emphasize this in his letters. In Romans 8, 5, Paul says this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice what Paul says. He says those that live, those that publicly live according to the Spirit set their minds, their private place of their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Living according to the Spirit starts with setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. Again, Paul says this and reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, where he says this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In this instance, Paul is actually affirming uh, the, the discipline that's necessary for overcoming spiritual warfare, and that is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. These thoughts in the private moments of life, to live a private life that pleases God, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. Private life is preparation for public life. Now, Putting this into practice, I know that it's more difficult than it, than it sounds. It's more difficult than just simply coming to an understanding and agreeing with mentally that, that the, the private areas of our life or the private sectors of our life have, have a great impact on the public sectors of our life. Putting this principle into practice and loving God deeply in the private areas of our life, it's difficult. And one of the primary reasons that it's difficult is because actually in the private moments, we don't do very well, do we? I mean, think about the moments where you are by yourself and alone and there's no noise. I mean, we readily in those private moments choose not to be alone or not to be isolated or choose not to be not doing anything. Right, we readily choose entertainment. We readily choose the glowing screens of our phones or to distract and, and to have something to consume. And we, we do that rather than choosing the disciplined private life with God. Just to give you a, a sense of what I'm talking about, the average U.S. adult right, will spend nearly three hours on a smartphone every day. I know what you're thinking. Some of you might be saying, well, I don't even have a smartphone and I don't do that. Well, all adults, this is ages 18 and up, they spend on average four hours and 27 minutes in front of a TV screen. And not just that, but as you go up in age, so does the average amount of time spent watching TV. Now, don't hear me wrong. This is not a sermon of technology is bad. But rather, it is to say that if we're going to clearly and articulately confront what happens in our private life and do it with honesty, we need to understand what we're readily choosing to do with our private lives. Now let's reflect just for a second on what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. If that's what it means, if the greatest commandment is what it means to live a life that pleases God, Jesus says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Now, to love anyone in this way, to love anyone with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, it requires deep relationship. And beyond that, deep relationship requires time and investment. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. <clears throat> and one of the ways that, that we as humans engage in deepening our relationship with God, now notice I said one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways, and, and this is kind of where I want us to hone in on today, uh, is through prayer. The conversation between us and God. I notice I said between us, not just us talking to God, but also listening and sitting in silence with God, being present with God. And, and thinking about the numbers that I talked about just briefly, the three hours and the four and a half hours of a smartphone and of TV, respectively, listen to this. 
Five minutes per day is the average amount of time most Christians spend in prayer. Five minutes. To give you a real sense of the weight of that statistic, here's what I want you to do over the next week. Take your top three relationships in your life. Maybe your spouse, it may be your mom or dad, it may be your brother or sister, it may be your child, whoever it is. Take the top three relationships in your life. And I want you to limit your conversation between you guys to five minutes per day over the next week. That's absurd. Nobody, nobody's going to actually do that. And there's a reason that nobody's actually going to do that. Because you can't have a relationship if you don't spend time with people and conversation and, and talking back and forth and being together and being present together. That, and that's key to relationship. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, actually, that's how much time my husband spends talking to me. And if that is true, if that's what you find yourself saying, here's what I want you to ask yourself. Is that relationally satisfying? Like, is your relationship better because of that? Now, I've talked with countless couples to know that the answer is no. I've talked with countless couples who are struggling because their communication, because their presence with one another is not good. And the truth is this, that conversation and time together are pivotal for relationship. Prayer is not the only way, but it is a primary way that we achieve this with God. Now, as I talk about prayer, I can already hear the pushback in my own mind. Right, I get home from work and I, I have these to-do lists that I need to get done and I have these things that I manage and I coach soccer and I have all these different things that, that are pressing on me and the truth of the matter is in those moments I feel like I need some me time. I need some, some time to kind of rest, a time to not think and not produce and, and, some and I'm tired and I need some time to decompress and here's the truth. That's everybody, including Jesus. Jesus felt that same thing. And the question is, what does Jesus do in those moments? What does Jesus do in the moments where he's needing me time? Well, he finds himself alone with the Father. Finds himself alone with the Father. He's not scrolling social media. He's not uh, watching The Office on Netflix. He's not watching some dude uh, role play on a GTA server like me. But rather, he's spending time alone with God. And so this is my actual challenge for this week. This is where we can actually put this into practice. This week, I wanna challenge you and myself to spend 20 minutes a day 20 minutes a day of, of turning our me time into we time with God. And yes, I threw up a little bit in my mouth when that came out because it's really cheesy and cliche, but here's the truth. It's significant. It's significant. Spending time with God is significant. And 20 minutes a day might sound like a lot to you, but consider this. The average sitcom, half-hour sitcom, actually is only 23 minutes. So it's even less than your, your one show. And I'm curious what it would mean just to seek to please God in, in that amount of time, which is actually four times the amount of the average that somebody spends on a daily basis anyway. To spend 20 minutes a day with God in prayer, sitting with God in, 
and space and setting aside time to be with God. Setting aside time to live a life that, that is pleasing to him in the private moments of life. And, and the thing is, you don't even have to be a Christian. Like if you have lasted this long and you, you are engaging this long with us in, in this conversation, in this talk, I challenge you to spend 20 minutes over the next week talking to God and just see what it means to, to be in his presence and to see how living a private life that pleases God prepares us for a public life that pleases God. Let's pray. God, we want to live a life that pleases you, a holistic life that pleases you. And what Jesus teaches is, is the reiteration of, of what you've taught from all of time, and that's that there are no compartments, that everything is related, that living a life that pleases you in the private moments of life prepares us to live a life that pleases you in the public moments of life, that loving you deeply in the, the private sectors of our minds prepares us to love our neighbor richly in the public sectors of life. This week, God, I, I pray that as we seek to, to please you out of response to the deep love that you have for us, God, would you richly bless those moments for those that, that seek and, and those that take the challenge and those that that pursue you for 20 minutes a day, God, would you richly bless those moments? God, we pray this in Jesus' name.